Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, major airlines are calling on the Canadian government to end the COVID-19 arrival testing for vaccinated travelers. Got some questions about where the government's getting their advice to make these policies, and is there data to support it? Canada is deploying special forces to Ukraine amid the rising tensions with Russia. Ara Brana, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, will join us to talk about that. And Health Canada has given the green light to Pfizer's antiviral treatment for COVID-19. Is this a saving grace? It's going to get it back on the right track? We certainly hope so. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. An awful lot of concern here in this country about some of the government's policies about dealing with the, the Omicron variant especially. Uh, we've talked at great length, and we'll uh, continue to give you updates on what's going on uh, with the uh, vaccine mandate with truckers, but also with what's going on in tourism and uh, p- people who are traveling internationally, and it is still happening these days. And a number of the experts have now petitioned the federal government, and for, for that matter, provincial governments, and said, look, guys, it's time to revise these plans. It's it's really not necessary to do what you're doing at the border. It's causing all kinds of grief. And, uh, well, basically, you know, when you look at what's going on here, Canada's busiest airport and the largest airlines are all calling on the federal government to drop its arrival testing rule for vaccinated air travelers. We'll explain exactly what those concerns are with our next guest. Beth Potter is the president of Tourism Industry Association of Canada and joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on what's going on and what some of the concerns are. Beth, first and foremost, welcome to the program. It's good to have you with us today. Great to be here with you today, Bill, especially on a a bright, sunny, snowy morning. It's about time, yeah, after what we went through over the last uh, 36 hours or so. Uh, As we mentioned, uh, life goes on in many of the airports, including Pearson and and John C. Monroe Hamilton Airport and in London Airport, of course, where there's an awful lot of passenger traffic. Uh, This is an interesting twist to this, Beth. Uh, Air Canada, WestJet, and Toronto Pearson have all issued a joint letter to the federal and Ontario governments calling on them to ditch this arrival test that is required. This is on top of uh, the vaccination mandate and pre-arrival negative COVID-19 tests. Uh, a lot of folks have been talking about this for many weeks now, Beth, and simply say, look, the policy is overkill. You don't need to do this, and it's causing all kinds of grief. Uh, were you surprised that these uh, these folks have banded together to finally speak as one voice to the government? No. Well, I mean, we work with them very closely and uh, and they are part of the Canadian Travel and Tourism Roundtable, which I co-chair. So I wasn't uh, completely surprised to see them come out with this letter at all. Um, it's certainly echoing messages that uh, we've been taking forward to government for the last 10 days or so um, about the, the uh, on-arrival testing. And, and I get it to a point. I mean, you know, as we've talked about, even with the truckers uh, vaccine mandate, I, I, if if the bottom line here is they're trying to keep us safe, thank you for that, guys. Uh, but it's the methodology, I think, that's really of concern here right now. And, uh, and, and, and we should also mention, by the way, it's not just Air Canada, WestJet, and Toronto Pearson that have uh, signed off on this letter. Uh, a growing number of physicians and healthcare experts who have been advising many of these governments are also on side with us and saying, guys, you don't need to be doing this. Uh, and that should, I think, be a, a very strong factor in what the governments are going to decide to do vis-a-vis policy. Well, even Dr. Tam last Friday um, said that to have the on-arrival testings redirected to where they're really needed is, would be better, that uh, that this is a bit of overkill right now. And I'm paraphrasing her. I'm not quoting sure. her. But um, 
uh, you know, we are not uh, able to access PCR testing at the community level right now, unless you are incredibly ill. So, you know, if you catch Omicron, uh, and you stay home and, you know, you live through it, the next time you want to travel, your first test, you're probably going to have the, uh, the, um, uh, the traces of the virus in your system and you're going to test positive and it's going to cause, it's going to cause some havoc for you when you first go to travel. So we've got, and, and the other thing too is, you know, there's a lot of people that are um, not accessing those tests that that probably need to. And so with the lack of tests at the community level, but this um, kind of, you know, doubling up of testing for travelers where the positivity rate is incredibly low by comparison to what it is in the community, we just think that it would be better to redeploy those tests from the arrivals uh, areas back to the community level. Uh, the quote from Dr. Tam, uh, well, uh, there's an extensive quote here, but I'll just uh, pick a line out of it uh, that I think underscores your point here. Uh, she says that uh, the uh, mandatory testing at the border is no longer needed and called it a capacity drain on the system as a whole. Uh, essentially saying uh, testing is great, and I think all the medical experts have told us that, Beth, but not there. That's not where the priority is. It's supposed to be in the community. And if they're doing all the testing on the border, <laughs> they're taking resources away from the community where those testings should be happening. Absolutely. And in order to get on a plane, you have to have a negative PCR test within 72 hours and you have to be fully vaccinated and all the staff within the um, airline uh, and airport venues are also fully vaccinated because they have to be by, by Canadian law. So you are testing a group of low risk people in the first place. Um, they've already proven to be negative to, to travel in the first place. So let's redeploy um, those tests to where they are needed most. Well, uh, I, I'm gonna call out governments. I've been doing this on a pretty regular basis. So it's no news, I guess, to our listeners. It just seems to me, and I know the letter sort of hints at this, but I'll come right out and say this. An awful lot of these policy decisions seem to be more political than medically based. And, and I think that's one of the frustrations that these organizations and certainly the, the great work that you guys are doing in the Tourism Ministry Association of Canada are feeling right now. is there, And we've been asking that from day one of our politicians. Show us why this policy needs to be enacted. Show us the data that suggests this area that you're concentrating on is part of the problem. And they have not yet done that. No, they haven't. And the other thing that they're doing is they're putting restrictions in place. They're making these decisions and not giving us an end date um, and saying, and here's what we need to see in order to, for these restrictions or, or these requirements to be changed um, or lifted. And, and that it was that is really frustrating, not only for the traveling public, but frustrating for all the business owners as well um, as they're trying to navigate you know, these ever-changing times. Well, a number of the folks that we've had on this program and have appeared on on many other programs over the last well, almost two years now, uh, are are jumping on side with this as well, and uh, and I think it's something we need to listen to. Uh, Dr. Zane Shagliff from uh, McMaster University here in Hamilton uh, has been a, a very strong advocate for doing testing and for being diligent uh, all the time. Uh, but he disagrees with this mandatory border testing rule and says it could be a lot more effective to require international travelers who develop symptoms after arriving to just get a lab test done and ensure that the samples are sequenced. Uh, and But to your point, and that's one area, the other is if, you, if you're already testing negative, if you've been vaccinated and have proof of vaccination, 
why can't they just say, have a nice trip, go on your way now and, and stay safe? I mean, that's all they really need to do here. There's, there's, there's no understanding, no rationalization here uh, to go to these extra steps that they're doing, the quarantining and everything else that needs to be done here. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that I think we all need to remember is that travel is a global sport. Um, and so let's look and see, like, let's learn from other countries, especially, you know, the other countries in our G7 cohort that, you know, what are they doing? I mean, the UK has lifted um, testing requirements, both pre-departure and on arrival. Um, and they've asked travelers to do a uh, day two lateral flow test, which is something that they can do, you know, in the comfort of their home. Uh, so you know, this is... You know, we should be learning um, from our colleagues around the world uh, so that we can be part of that seamless traveler experience. And to my point, by the way, about this being more political, I mean, you know, here in Ontario, it was the Premier, uh, Premier Ford, who was one of the first ones to jump on side and said, we have to close the borders down. Uh, Premier Kenny in Alberta was saying the same sort of thing. Uh, I've talked to medical experts about this, uh, and, and I'm sure you have too, Beth, that have basically said that, that's a fool's game. Uh, you know, when we first heard of the Omicron virus and the Premier react, you know, reacted in the way he did, saying shut the borders down, uh, most of the medical experts were saying it's already here, Premier. It, it, there's no sense in doing that. You know, you're closing the, the, the barn door after the horses have left. It's already here. We need to control it here not pretend that we can control it at the border because you can't. So I'm, I, I don't know where they're getting their advice to develop these sorts of policies, uh, but this is a pretty strong voice now, not just from uh, the travel community, but from the medical community that are saying we need to change this. Uh, I got to ask you, uh, from your years of dealing with governments and, and talking to folks about policy, are you, are you optimistic that they're going to listen to this? Well, um, we are going to continue to push our message on this. We're going to continue to have conversations. You know, we have been able to get government to move on things uh, through the last two years when it comes to the pandemic. We have been able to get government to uh, to put programming and 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 to make decisions that are good for the for businesses and for Canadians. So um, I'm optimistic that we will be um, successful in, in getting this done. And again, as we talked about with the truckers uh, vaccination policy a couple of days ago, nobody is saying give these people a free pass. I mean, there is still, as you mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation, a very, very strict protocol about traveling, about proof of vaccination and other things that are already in play and have been in play for quite some time that the medical professionals have said is more than enough uh, to offer the, the sorts of defenses that we need in a situation like this. Excuse me, that's right. And, you know, we have also, you know, when we take recommendations to government, we are following the science uh, and we're following the advice of, of experts in the field. Um, we're not trying to make this up. This is, you know, we understand the need and the, the, the absolute um, uh, main point is to keep Canadians safe. We get that. And we absolutely want that. We're in the travel and tourism industry. We want to keep Canadians safe. We've always wanted to keep our guests uh, and, and visitors to our to our country safe um, and, and give them a, a healthy and, and experience. But let's do it in a way that makes sense. And let's do it in a way that, you know, doesn't cause undue burden, doesn't cause confusion, doesn't cost you know, put, you know, put a huge cost onto the consumer that really isn't necessary to be there. 
Well, and let's talk about that. I don't want to get too deeply into this. That's probably a discussion for another time, but the impact that these shutdowns and lockdowns and, frankly, some of these restrictions have had on the industry. Uh, when we talk about the tourism industry, invariably we talk about here, especially in southern Ontario, uh, you know, places that are close to the American border where we need those Americans to come over and spend money and 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 and, and the sorts of, a, of attractions here, you know, the, the, the live Broadway-type sh- shows and concerts and some things of this nature but travel's a part of that as well and we know that the airline industry has been crippled by what's gone on in the last little while and and i think a lot of us in, in the initial stage of this uh, beth was saying oh, that's unfortunate but i guess it's something we have to do but i think there are some legitimate questions being asked right now is do we really need to be going this far well and that's the question that we ask all the time you know before covid hit the travel and tourism industry in Canada was a $105 billion a year industry and employed nearly 2 million Canadians. We are half that now. Um, and, and we have lost businesses and we have lost employees that will never come back to our industry because they see our industry as unstable because we have been the the go-to every time government wants to enact any kind of restrictions. It's been our industry that has been... Um, that has felt the impact of those first and hardest. And so, you know, we've got a a huge amount of work ahead of us to rebuild. And, you know, I was looking at some forecasting in the fall um, when we were talking about trying to get rid of the pre-departure test. Um, This is before Omicron came into play. And the forecasting at that point said, if we if we keep the pre-departure testing in place, we are not going to recover to 2020-19 levels until 2025-2026. But if we got rid of that and opened up our borders and made it easier for people to travel again, that we would recover by the end of 2023. So you can just see the impact. I just wanted to share that to demonstrate the impact that these restrictions have on the ability for this, for the travel and tourism industry in Canada to to get back to doing what they do best and to to recover and and start to recuperate um, from this pandemic. Shouldn't that be one of the takeaways from all of what we've done here in the last little while is that let's be strategic. We're going to be diligent here. We're not just throwing caution to the wind here, but let's be strategic in where we apply resources. Because if we've learned one thing in the last little while, we don't have unlimited resources. And there's always going to be a problem uh, deploying these resources to the proper places. But we have to have a plan. Uh, And you can't just be arbitrary and say, okay, we're going to go after airports and air travelers right now. Because uh, we've, I mean, you know, have we learned nothing? It doesn't work. It's not the way that we should be doing it. We should be concentrating on what's going on in the communities themselves. The experts know that. Uh, you guys know that. I think a lot of people who live in the communities know that. And I, I guess we need to really focus and, and be a strong voice so the government finally gets that message. Yeah. And, you know, what we hear a lot is um, the fact that we're a federation and the lines of responsibility between the provinces and the federal government, you know, is drawn and it's fairly, um, it's a fairly solid line, not a dotted line. And so there are times when the government, the federal government looks at us and says, that's not our responsibility, that's the provinces. And then we hear the same thing coming from the provinces the other way. And I guess my challenge to them is to say, you know, we are living in an unprecedented time right now. We have to find new ways of working together so that we can get to the best resolution um, possible. And, you know, maybe that means that we've got to break up those those solid lines between areas of responsibility and look for different ways of working together. 
Yeah, there was a, a mindset you remember in the first wave of the pandemic. It seems so long ago now. Remember that phrase, we're all in this together? And there seemed to be, a, I thought, a pretty strong sense of cooperation between the federal government and the provincial governments. Uh, that's uh, that's that's waning right now. And, and you're right, you're starting to see some turf wars right now about who's responsible for what. And, and we got to get over that. I mean, that's that's a dangerous road to go down uh, if we're going to talk about economic recovery. Uh, Beth, I want to appreciate the, the time that you've taken this. Uh, I, I think it's a very, very good step and a proactive step uh, for the industry to speak with one voice about this. And hopefully the government's going to listen to it. Thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. Beth Potter, who is the president of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada, imploring the governments, not just federal, but the provincial governments, especially here in Ontario, to back off with the testing at airports, that it doesn't really need to be done. There's a protocol that was in place that was working, and this is overkill. And, and as a matter of fact, it's it's a, a poor deployment of the resources that we do have. Uh, what they're doing there, they should be doing in other parts of, uh, of community right across this province and this country uh, to try to curtail the spread of, of Omicron or whatever else could be coming down the road. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are some concerns uh, overseas about what's happening with Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, well, the NATO response to that, uh, the Russians, of course, as we've mentioned on this program, uh, are already uh, positioning troops right along the Ukraine border, uh, much to the chagrin, not just of the Ukraine government, but, of course, of the United States and, frankly, the Canadian government, too. Now we find out that uh, Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko says that his country and Russia are going to be holding massive military drills along those borders in the next little while. Charles de Ledesma has some details. Lukashenko says the manoeuvres will be conducted on Belarus's western border and also in the country's south, where it borders Ukraine. Ukrainian officials have warned that Russia could launch an attack from various directions, including from the territory of Belarus. Russia has denied having plans to attack its neighbour and in turn has accused the Ukrainian leadership of hatching plans to use force to reclaim control of Russian-backed rebel-held territories. In turn, Ukrainian authorities have denied the Russian suggestion. I'm Charles de uh, It's It's a very tense situation and uh, well, some are already liking it to a powder keg uh, with what's happening there with the build-up of troops and uh, what the NATO response may or may not be, I guess, in situations like this. Uh, to try to make some sense of this, please to welcome back to the program, uh, Professor Arl Braun. Professor Braun is a professor at International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. The uh, the pressures are ramping up. The uh, The tension is ramping up. It, it almost seems as if uh, Vladimir Putin, Professor, is just thumbing his nose at NATO and says, I'm doing this. What are you guys going to do about it? It certainly does appear that way, and what becomes increasingly clear is that uh, he does not uh, either respect or fear President Biden. He is testing the American president, even though Mr. Biden has been in politics for a very long time, and uh, he is conducting a kind of psychological warfare against Ukraine and against the West. We don't know at this stage if this will turn into physical warfare, kinetic uh, uh, power projection. It may not be uh, that that is what it will end up as, but very much it appears that Mr. Putin wants to isolate and to demoralize Ukraine. One of the things that has been repeated time and time again uh, that they've asked for from NATO, certainly, is a guarantee that uh, Ukraine will not be allowed to join 
NATO. Um, and, and that's something that's been going on ever since, uh, the, I guess, the, the separation some years ago. Uh, and the, the at that time, the request from, uh, from the Ukraine government to actually be a part of the NATO uh, alliance. Uh, is that the only reason or are they using that as an excuse for a possible invasion here? They indeed have been saying that for uh, a while, that they do not want uh, Ukraine to join NATO. And we have to sort of deconstruct what the demand is, mm-hmm. that they want a written guarantee. Because what they are saying fundamentally is the following. We have on our borders a state that is independent, which we have attacked. We have occupied part of that state, illegally annexed that uh, part, Crimea. We are fostering a rebellion, a secessionist movement in the eastern part of that state. And now we want you to guarantee that if the people of Ukraine, in any kind of democratic vote, decide that they want to join an alliance, we have a veto over that. We are going to limit the sovereignty of that state. The brazenness of challenge to international law, to democracy, to independence is breathtaking. Uh, And... If the alliance agrees to something of this order, then what is the next demand? And we see that Russia is making additional demands. They have also said not only do they not want to have an enlargement of NATO, that they want to have a veto over the free will of people in states, uh, whether it's Georgia or Ukraine, but they want to alter the post-Cold War settlement. That is, those states that have joined NATO in Eastern Europe should not have the right to have maneuvers by NATO on their territory. So they would become second-class citizens. And ultimately, I suspect that what Russia fears most is not NATO, not the EU, because let's not forget that the crisis in 2014 started not with NATO enlargement, but it started with an agreement that Ukraine was going to follow to have somewhat closer relations with the EU. Membership would be far off into the future, as is indeed NATO membership. What Russia seems to fear most is that Ukraine could develop an alternate model to the ultra-nationalistic kleptocracy and dictatorship that Mr. Putin is running inside Russia. Should Ukraine become a successful modern democratic state, that would be an example that uh, the Russian leadership does not want to see in a large Slavic state on its borders. It would be an alternate vision, a successful vision compared to Russia. You know, Russia needs to be right-sized. Russia is not a superpower, except in the case of nuclear weapons. Russia is a disruptive power. 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia, which has some very wealthy people, it has unlimited natural resources, tremendous scientific talent, is a poor country. It has failed to modernize. Uh, to modernize. It is a state where, on average, the per capita income now is lower than in Turkey or in Romania or Poland. But to your point, Professor, uh, Putin has made uh, no bones about the fact that, that he considers the breakup of Russia some 30 years ago as, as I think he called it, the uh, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. Uh, so this should come as no surprise. I mean, you've you, you got to figure that there, at some point uh, Putin is actually trying to reassemble the Soviet Union as it used to be, uh, however unrealistic those expectations might be. But this seems to be a step in that direction. If it's made easy, he may indeed do that. Um, Putin is a clever tactician, but he's not a master strategist. Uh, 
And if he was a master strategist, he would have a successful modern state. He's been in power for more than 20 years. He has failed to achieve that. He has missed historical opportunities. So he looks for external successes, quote unquote, to compensate for the vast domestic failures. And so if he finds a soft target, he will move on it. He is ruthless, but he's not reckless. So the question here is whether Ukraine will be a soft enough target, that there will be that temptation. Mr. Putin tends to, uh, tends to back off if he comes up against a hard target. And by hard target, I don't mean just in military terms, but also economic, political, and otherwise. So Ukraine needs help along the entire spectrum. Uh, Ukraine needs uh, economic help. It needs healthcare help, even vaccines and, and uh, medicines. And of course, it needs also military help. The British have decided that they're going to provide Ukraine with additional uh, anti-tank, light anti-tank uh, uh, missiles, and that can help the Ukraine uh, military. We have had some training missions in Ukraine. We have some specialized forces. We are in the process of deciding whether we are going to provide some defensive weapons. I hope that we do, because it is not just a matter that is uh, symbolic. It is also substantive, and it's important at both uh, levels. And the message uh, that uh, we need to have Mr. Putin uh, uh, face is that Ukraine is not a soft target. It is not an easy opportunity for expansion. What about the Canadian involvement here? Uh, we know, of course, that uh, Minister uh, Jolie is, is over there visiting uh, some of the folks in Ukraine right now, some of the government officials. And as you mentioned, uh, Professor, they've already made an announcement that they're going to be riding uh, forces over there. Uh, they've had been over there in the past, of course, providing, as they call, training, instructor, and leadership expertise. Uh, but they were quite clear when they announced the, the increase uh, in the number of troops over there, this is not for training. Uh, what are they there for? Is this a show of strength against the Russians? It's a very small number, and it could be just uh, a contingency that in case of an actual Russian invasion, which we cannot exclude, but though uh, it may not be as likely as some pundits believe, uh, that these forces, uh, very highly trained specialized forces, would be there to evacuate embassy staff and civilians uh, who are working for various uh, civil society organizations. These are very small uh, numbers. Uh, and so even in terms of symbolism, they don't add that much. We, I think, probably would need to do more. But it is important that our foreign minister is there. Uh, it is uh, vital that a large congressional bipartisan delegation is there. The Europeans have sent a delegation, but they're trying to push the Normandy format, which has failed so far. And uh, uh, the Germans have played uh, a very unhelpful role in the past because uh, they are buying vast quantities of uh, Russian hydrocarbons at the same time that they are proclaiming uh, their wish to become carbon neutral. Uh, they uh, want to see the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would damage Ukraine, damage Poland, make uh, Germany, the largest economy, more dependent. So cynics would say that uh, the Germans just uh, want to make profit uh, while the Americans provide uh, the protection. It's essential that uh, the West Europeans also commit themselves strongly to Ukraine and make it very clear to Russia 
that there are costs that would far outweigh any possible benefits of an actual in invasion. And also that this kind of constant saber rattling of a psychological warfare that uh, demoralizes Ukraine, that makes it difficult for Ukraine to become successful, this cannot uh, continue. It has been go going on for months. And oddly enough, it seems to increase after every meeting with uh, the American leadership. How do you flex your muscle to, to get the message across to Putin in a situation like this, though, Professor? Uh, you know, President Biden has said that if, if there is an incursion, it'll be met with the strongest economic sanctions they've ever seen. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Senator Richard Blumenthal, who's a Connecticut Democrat, is, is over there meeting uh, with President Zelensky and others and said, we will impose crippling economic sanctions. But more importantly, he went on to say, we will give the people of Ukraine the arms, the lethal arms they need to defend their lives and their livelihoods. Is that going to have any impact at all on Putin? I mean, he doesn't, I, I know you and I have talked in the past, Putin is never going to admit that the economic sanctions in place right now are hurting his country, but we know that they are. And, and you've outlined what's happening there with the, their, their economies. Uh, but it seems as if military force of, 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 and the threat of military action uh, seems a bit to be about the only thing that he pays attention to. And it, it's, it's pretty obvious that Joe, President Biden doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want to make that sort of commitment. You are correct. Uh, uh, Senator Blumenthal has talked about uh, military aid, but he is not the president. He does not make American policy. Mr. Biden and his team uh, do make that policy. And Mr. Biden's approach has been, and one can sympathize with the desire to avoid conflict. Once you have military violence, it can escalate in very unpredictable way. And I think it is wise to do whatever possible to avoid that. But at the same time, when you send the kind of message where you say, we are going to engage in economic retaliation, but we are excluding the possibility of also using military force, of confronting with military force. I mean, after all, uh, you know, NATO has vastly greater forces than Russia. The economy of the NATO states combined is something like 15 to 20 times the size of Russia's. So we have an understanding of how minuscule Russia's economy is compared to, to, to NATO's, and yet NATO's on the defensive. When you exclude the military option, you are basically negotiating with a hand tied behind your back. And with Mr. Putin, doesn't seem to work because he's willing to take economic pain. Since the elites are very wealthy, Mr. Putin lives in a lavish lifestyle, uh, and the people of Russia um, have had protests, but he has jailed opposition leaders and so on. And so if he can seem to have external successes, he is of the belief that this will divert attention away from domestic problems. It worked in the past to an extent. I doubt that it's going to work indefinitely, but this is the formula that he's using. Uh, people think that he's playing chess, but actually Mr. Putin is playing poker and he keeps upping the ante. And so we have to think very carefully in terms of psychological warfare and what it takes what does Mr. Putin uh, fear? Uh, do we reinforce the Eastern European states like Poland? Should there be a permanent deployment of NATO forces in, in Poland um, rather than just uh, the rotational forces? Even that, uh, Mr. Putin uh, is demanding should, should end, leaving these countries basically vulnerable to Soviet, uh, sorry, to Russian uh, intimidation. Uh, what about the Baltic states? We have some forces stationed in the Baltic states. Uh, should we reinforce those forces uh, to send a message to Russia? 
So there's a great deal that can be done. And sadly, when I look at the pattern of these meetings and negotiations that Mr. Biden or his team have had with Russia, after each session, <laughs> Russia seems somehow to be emboldened rather than backing down. Well, nothing came of the meetings that they had, I guess, about a week and a half, two weeks ago right now. There were no commitments uh, from either side, which uh, I guess, you know, goes back to our statement at the beginning of our conversation, Professor, that Putin's drawn a line in the sand here. Uh, and, and basically, he's he's challenging President Biden to cross that line, and Biden just doesn't seem to want to go there. Uh, and, and you're right, uh, every day that he doesn't uh, make that commitment... Uh, first of all, there's more frustration from the Ukraine government, uh, but at the same time, uh, an awful lot of frustration from from the, the other NATO members that say, just how far are we going to go here? Because Putin's already stated that if they do any of the things you've just talked about, even strengthening areas in other parts of, of that of that particular part of the country, or the world, uh, he's going to take that as, as as a threat to his nation, which might justify his invasion into Ukraine, at least in his mind. Well, this is what he is saying. Uh, the question is whether he is willing to risk an all-out conflict with uh, NATO over Ukraine, a conflict that he would lose. Uh, and he has not really been been tested. And obviously, we have to do this. The West would have to do this very, very carefully. So it is find the right balance between deterrence and provocation. But so far, deterrence has not been very effective the way it has been formulated that largely rests on the threat of economic sanctions, which have been painful, but not sufficient. And um, what has hurt Russia and what uh, Mr. Putin has feared more, has feared more than uh, uh, economic sanctions have been a drop in energy prices. Russia is very much dependent on selling hydrocarbons. Something like 60% plus of their exports are made up of hydrocarbons. Uh, the West should become much less dependent. Uh, they should do whatever they can to drive down the price of oil and natural gas. The price of uh, oil and natural gas have skyrocketed. This has benefited Russia tremendously. This is more than compensated for any economic uh, economic sanctions. So we have to think through very carefully uh, how to uh, uh, formulate the kind of uh, economic sanctions that uh, uh, are really, really exact, uh, a sufficient uh, toll. We also have to look at cyber warfare. And this is where Ukraine is getting some help. Uh, the uh, Kremlin has engaged already in significant cyber warfare against Ukraine. NATO has vast capabilities. We need to do more for Ukraine. We need to reinforce the eastern flank of uh, NATO on that. And then we have to think very carefully as to the positioning of forces. The Americans have drawn down their forces in Europe. Uh, they have not moved the significant forces into Eastern Europe. Uh, uh, during the previous administration, Poland was urging the United States to establish a permanent base in, in Poland. Um, I wrote an article, as a matter of fact, saying that this was a good idea to send a message to, to Russia to make it very clear to Mr. Putin that NATO has lines as well. It's not just Russia makes up these kind of uh, demands and expects that uh, uh, this vast uh, military and political organization, NATO, would just cave in to its wishes and uh, not only forget about the aggression. I mean, you notice how he has progressed. We're not even talking about reversing the aggression in Crimea, which everywhere uh, within NATO says, uh, states has been viewed as a, a frontal attack 
not just on Ukraine, but a frontal attack on international law. Uh, it, he's just banking that, the annexation of Crimea, and now he's demanding more concessions. So uh, we have been reactive rather than proactive. Exactly. And uh, this has not gone well. Professor, very tense situation. We do thank you for your time today and your perspective on this. Uh, we uh, will stay in touch. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Professor Oral Braun from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some good news. Health Canada has finally approved Pfizer's COVID-19 antiviral treatment. Uh, some concern about, well, first of all, distribution and, and just how effective it's going to be. But to that end, Procurement Minister Philomena Tassi says that Canada already has enough of the new antiviral treatment from Pfizer to treat 30,000 people. Uh, Minister Tassi says about another 120,000 courses of the antiviral are going to be shipped by the end of March. This morning's announcement that Health Canada has authorized the use of Pfizer's COVID-19 antiviral treatment, Paxlovid, is welcome news. And it marks another important milestone in Canada's fight against COVID-19. So let's talk about this, about just how effective this is going to be. And I know that many healthcare experts have already weighed in on this and uh, and saying this could be, uh, I think the phrase I hear an awful lot is game changer. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Thomas Tenkate, who is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson uh, University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me, Bill. Let's, first of all, your impression on this. I know there's some talk about this for quite some time. Uh, there's a lot of excitement when we heard that Pfizer was, was working diligently on this and doing the testing. Uh, but as I've heard and as I've read some of the reaction from some of your uh, colleagues in the, in the industry over the last 12 hours or so, uh, if I can uh, quote Larry David, uh, curb your enthusiasm. It's a great idea, but it's not to be all and end all. What, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree from the perspective that it, it's definitely an important uh, additional measure uh, that we can implement in the whole process. Uh, but, but obviously, from in a pub, from a public health perspective, we want to prevent illness versus treat illness, and so so you know the focus is is always going to be on try, on prevention. But for those people who end up becoming uh, symptomatic, then uh, trying to minimize the symptoms so that we can keep them out of hospital is an is an important uh, important thing to do and so so that's where this uh, that, that's where this medication comes into play that's that's a very important factor in here isn't it uh, professor this does not prevent covid uh, and, and I know some people have already said, well, I, I wasn't going to get a vaccination. Now I really don't need to get one. Uh, this, this is not a preventative measure. This is to treat the symptoms once you get it. Yeah, yes, that's correct. It, it's uh, so so basically, you know, what what we're looking at is, you know, someone becomes infected, they they be, they start to show symptoms. And we, what we're trying to do is reduce the symptoms uh, and the impact on the symptoms sufficiently enough so that they can uh, manage their their uh their symptoms at home versus having to go to hospital. Now, this has been a process that's been going on for quite some time, though, if I recall, uh, you know, trying to treat the symptoms. I mean, there was always a concern. I remember the first wave and certainly in the second wave uh, when hospitalizations and, and ICU admissions were skyrocketing and, and many, many people, too many people were dying. It basically meant if you were in the ICU, uh, you know, the, the it was 50-50 as to whether or not you were actually going to get out of there. But we, then we started to see examples of treatments that seemed to be effective. And I guess the one that a lot of folks are going to recall is was Donald Trump himself, uh, who went to Walter Reed Hospital and we're told went through extensive treatment. Now, it wasn't this, this particular medication, 
but it had to be done intravenously. And, and I guess it was very expensive and not available for everybody. Uh, d- does this make the, the, the uh, treatment of the symptoms uh, much more accessible to many more people now? Well, definitely, you know, having it available as a as a as a tablet that you can take at home is is much more accessible. You know, as you as you mentioned earlier, there's there are a range of you know, sort of logistical issues with this. Uh, in in essence, getting a sufficient uh, supply so that it is available for people. And and uh, you know, one of the things is that it it has to also to be effective, it has to be uh, taken uh, as soon as possible with, once the symptoms start. And so, but but to be able to get to get the drug from you know what what I understand here, someone has to test positive, uh, then they have to go to their doctor. The doctor has to have have uh, access to it. Uh, that they have to go to the pharmacy, and then they can get it. And so so you can imagine that you know given the limited supplies of either uh, the uh, rapid antigen tests or the or PCR testing. You know that first step is potentially a big block in in the system on of actually getting this rolled out to people. Well, and since we seem to be lagging behind in testing, or at least the kind of testing and the amount of testing we should be done, uh, trying to identify people that actually have COVID and in, 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 in these early stages is going to be rather difficult, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, like I think overall, you know, this is a great. Uh, thing to have have in our in our arsenal of 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 things that we can use to try and uh minimize the impact of covid but uh my sense is that you know seeing that it has to be given within the uh this five-day window of of symptoms starting uh and and the 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 various steps that you have to go through it's really going to be a a small number of people who will actually be able to uh, be fit the initial criteria of of being able to get it, but also being able to go through those steps fast enough to be able for this for this to be for this to be effective. And so, so I think overall, you know, it's a it's a great uh, thing to have, but uh, you know, there there are a range of you know uh, issues with it. And but but as we you know, like we've seen throughout the the, the pandemic, you know, we in a lot of ways the logistics and supplies and and whatever else seem to catch up with with the. Uh, you know, with the medication or the vaccine or w- whatever the initiative is. Uh, we'd heard from Minister Tassi, the procurement minister, who talked about uh, the fact that they've already uh, procured some of these already, and I guess they're ready uh, to, to ship these out to the people that are, are going to have to need this in situations. But as I understand this, though, Professor, this is a, a pretty intense protocol, isn't it? It's a number of pills each day. Yeah, yeah. So so it's, it's uh, you know, and so that that's where you have to... Uh, uh, make sure that people take the the regime you know as 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 directed and uh and and keep it up so so there there are a range of uh you know factors involved with this but uh you know if we can get it to the people who need it the most and can get it there uh you know uh in a timely manner we you know we should have uh, a good outcome for in regard to minimizing people going to hospital Talk to us about the efficacy of this. Uh, I, I, you know, as you mentioned, this is basically to reduce the risk of hospitalization or even, you know, to go into an ICU. And, uh, you know, we've, we've heard right from the get-go of this whole thing uh, two years ago now that, that those are two of the statistics that, that experts look at to see just how devastating this, uh, this virus and this pandemic is, is, is hospitalizations. Uh, they say that, uh, that this particular uh, drug is 89% uh, effective. Exactly what does that mean? Well, yeah. So, so basically, what they're saying there is, in when when they do the uh, 
the, the clinical trials, they, they have one group of people who get the drug and one group of people who don't get the drug get a, what we call a placebo. Each group don't know which one they're getting and at after and and they 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 uh, take the drug for the for the uh, the period of time that they're required to and then you know they look at who who ends up being hospitalized and who doesn't across that that broad group and basically what they identified was 80 uh, you know people who were who were uh, who had the placebo went to hospital much more than people who had had the drug and and in regard to that they're saying that it was 89% effective in stopping people who took the drug actually going to hospital so only you know 11 out of 100 people actually end up going to hospital versus versus uh, people in the placebo group and we should mention here i i would think it's common sense but just to reiterate uh, uh, this does not stop you from getting COVID. It, it's once you are identified and, and you are testing positive, uh, it helps you deal with the symptoms. Uh, and I guess the, the first takeaway here is, is that vaccination is still the number one tool here. Yes, yes, definitely. You know, it, we, what we really want to do is try and prevent people uh, getting getting uh, uh, COVID and, and uh, having symptoms. And so, so, and that's what, uh, you know, vaccines are doing. They, they're, they're trying to prevent uh you know, uh, infection as much as possible. But if if you do get infected, they're, they're minim- trying to minimise the symptoms. And so, so obviously, we're trying to minimise uh, and and prevent infection as much as possible. And so, so that's where the you know masking uh, and uh, you know, social distancing and and all those other measures are, are still all very important as well. So it's it's definitely not uh, you know now that we have the drug, we we don't need to worry about those other things. It's it's definitely uh, you know a, a, an important measure for a select group of people in select circumstances. It's it's going to take a little self motivation, I guess, uh, to, to move forward on this. Uh, as you mentioned to us, uh, uh, the person should start taking uh, this drug, this uh, Paxlovid, uh, no more than five days after symptoms start. So we're pretty much going to have to do a, maybe even a little bit of self analysis here. Uh, that if you see that these symptoms are persisting, that you, I guess, step one is is to get tested, isn't it? Yes, that that's correct. So so basically, you know, once the onset of symptoms, you then have to uh, you know get a, get tested, and so then the question is. You know whether or not they will, uh, you know, uh, accept a rapid antigen test, or do you have to wait for a, for a full PCR test? I, my understanding is that they, that you know, if if there is the rapid antigen test used, that that they can you know base it on that. But uh, you know, ideally, you know, the the PCR test, but that that then builds in you know sort of uh, additional you know sort of lead time in regard to getting those results. So so definitely you know. But you know, we know that uh, you know getting your hands on the the rapid antigen tests uh, are also uh, you know quite difficult at the moment too. So so there's you know again it's that that sort of multiple logistical factors uh, coming together with with this uh, with this uh, medication and, and making it effective. But but if we can uh, overcome those, I think it, it's uh, it is a, an important measure. Uh, there are always going to be critics, and I've seen some of the, the criticisms already on social media, as I'm sure you have. Uh, and they're using the same argument with the vaccines that, oh, they rushed this and, you know, they just pulled this down in a year. It usually takes years and years and years to do this. Uh, my understanding with this particular treatment, uh, Professor, is that uh, this is actually the result of, of, of some of the work that started almost 20 years ago during SARS uh, here in Ontario, uh, the SARS-CoV virus at that time. And it's really variations on that work. So this is this is not something that uh, they they whipped up over the last couple of months. This is about twenty years in the making, isn't it? 
definitely. You know, we I think it, you know the the two key things that we've we found with the you know with the pandemic and uh, the you know and the development of the vaccine so quickly and now the development of various uh, uh, treatment regimes is the is the the two aspects of that that uh, you know we're able to uh, sort of genetically uh, sort of understand what the what what the uh, genetics of the the uh, the virus is and so we can really really understand exactly what it is and and they've been able to do that very quickly and 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 share that information plus we've also got uh, you know people all around the world uh, working together on, on this as well so 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 I think really that it's that it's that aspect of that the technology that we have that builds on existing uh, knowledge and information plus also people working together uh, in a in essence speeds up the process. And by the way, just to that point, because I know they use the, they try to draw the parallel between that and vaccines. Uh, it's the same thing. The vaccine technology started many, many years ago as well. It, it didn't start when the pandemic did. Uh, they'd been working on uh, variations on this because of SARS and related uh, coronaviruses for some time. But uh, I, well, sometimes you just want to, you know, ignore people and and their, and their paths that they want to take on this because they're going to believe what they're going to believe. Uh, you mentioned something else, and I, I brought Procurement Minister Philomena Tassi uh, with a clip just before we started our conversation, Professor. Uh, let's talk about procurement, if we could, for a second. I mean, there was a great deal of excitement uh, about a year ago uh, when all of a sudden vaccines were going to be available, and we knew that our government was saying, yes, we've procured this from this group and this from Pfizer and this from Moderna, and we thought, boy, we're in pretty good shape. Problem was, we couldn't seem to get them here fast enough uh, for the desired people that wanted to actually roll their sleeves up. There's going to be a real rush for this, I would imagine, because this is great news for treating people that already have this. And there are some of the you know countries that are actually in much worse shape than we are that are going to be looking at this. Are you concerned about uh, whether or not we're going to be able to procure the the amount of and the dosages that we need here to try to to make this an effective tool? Well, well, definitely that is that is a you know question mark. I, I think uh, you know as I said, they've they've got uh, you know supplies uh, on you know on hand coming, and and then another uh, lot coming in in March, and then a you know a full order uh, uh, that. But but you know I think you know you you're you're right. There, there's going to be a lot of a lot of uh, com- uh, countries really competing for this and. Uh, and and you know, I suppose it just depends on what arrangements are in place already. But but when you think about it, you know, the the number that they're talking about, uh, that that you know, right right now, but also uh, through March, is still not a huge number uh, in comparison to the number of cases. So so it, it's 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 that aspect of uh, initially uh, sort of prioritizing who can get it, uh, and then uh, lifting the. The criteria, or making the criteria uh, sort of uh, broader, to one, once more 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 availability is there. So, so I think you know again that you know that's what they did with the vaccines is really sort of target uh, you know the highest risk people, and and I think that's that's the way they'll do it this time as well. And it is, by the way, a doctor prescription. You can't just go over to the to the pharmacy and, and get this over the counter, at least not yet. Anyway, in the initial mm-hmm. stages, a lot of speculation about this, but a lot of uh, I think uh, uh, optimism uh, based on uh, what we've heard so far from this. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program, Professor, to uh, give us some perspective on this. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks very much, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Professor Tom uh, Tenkate, uh, who is, of course, a professor at the School of Occupational Public Health at Ryerson University with uh, some pretty good news about the uh, the protocol 
that's happening here. And of course, the availability of it. So check with your doctors, of course. But the other element of this is you have to have proof of a, of a positive test to actually qualify for this. But uh, deal with your family physician and uh, they'll be able to steer you in the right direction. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.